From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this afternoon with Eric Bradle and Shane Jensen. I believe Audie Weiner is going to show up at some point. We're not entirely sure. Audie's, no, I'm being waved off. Audie Weiner's out for the week. Sadly, he'll be back. Some combination of us are here every week. We have been in the world of Zoom more weeks than not for the last two and a half years. An upside of that is that we usually have more of the crew on hand. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do. The show will go up. Wednesday morning on SiriusXM be replayed a few times over the course of the week on SiriusXM. And of course, we get a podcast up sometime Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. Afternoon, guys. How are you? I'm looking at Eric in his office, Shane at home. I'm calling in from Wharton's West Coast faculty offices after teaching this morning. Got a week of teaching out here, but good to see y'all. Curious what in the world of sports analytics and sports more generally has caught your eye recently. Well, I think, you know, to me, the biggest news right now, doing well, uh, the biggest news right now has been in MLB since we last on the air. Albert Pujols made it to 700, which was extremely exciting. And, uh, you know, obviously, historically, 500 is a big milestone. So 700 is a monster milestone. Obviously, only four people there. Um, Eric, remind he, us who those four people are. Other Well, uh, Barry Bonds has uh, 762. You can put whatever asterisk you want next to it. He did hit 762 home runs. I'm putting an asterisk next to it, but that's me. Uh, Hank Aaron had 755. Mm-hmm. Uh, Babe Ruth, 714. And then Aaron Pujol, uh, Albert Pujols was 700. That's it. That's remarkable. Those are the four. Those are the four. And How would, uh, how would you say, say something more about Pujols's career those of us who haven't followed him closely i mean at what point did people feel like he might be in that category how has he actually achieved that category how would you characterize the career arc well i mean i mean i I think the thing is i mean he was like mvp level for so many seasons in st louis and that really was obviously when he had his pre-career and then he kind of languished in the place where you know you know people yeah, in a very difficult language. place to languish, which is in with the Los Angeles uh, uh, Angels. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously he's kind of had this like kind of last season um, revival, essentially in St. Louis again. To give to give his kind of career beyond the home run totals some context, we, we talk about war a lot. Obviously, it's kind of single omnibus sort of statistic we use uh, for measuring baseball performance. His career war is now at about 100, is at 101 which puts him 30th all-time among Major League Baseball players, mm-hmm. which is a, a, incredible. I mean, nobody nobody else currently playing is anywhere near that, um, though Mike Shane, Trout Shane, is actually getting what would be What might be one's expected career war if you hit 700 home runs? That's a and good do you question. Think he's, a lot of think he's above being a slugger, you know, I, I, or, you know, it's a, it's a slugging home runs. Um I'm trying no, to get at what else his game is he above or below con- contributing in other aspects of his game or in other aspects of, of hitting. Why? Well, so I think it, he specifically is probably like lower than, you know, the, the career wars of the other three players that were mentioned uh, are, are higher. And I yes. think that's in part because of the position that Albert Poole plays. He played one of the least important defensive positions 
for most of his career, actually for half his career, who played one of the least important defensive positions and for the other half played DH. So, I mean, he just, you know, I, I think it's sort of, you know, basically he, Shane, that's per, he, first base, first base yeah, is the first, first, base. first base. Yeah. Are you he saying that between first base and DH okay. uh, for his entire career? So, and, and, and so I think that really, if anything, probably has kind of brought that war total or, or like makes that war total a little bit less than it would or, ordinarily be. If you somehow yeah, on were a traditional fielder that hit 700 home runs, you would be higher. On traditional okay. stats, I mean, he's fourth, obviously, in home runs. I think he's second in RBIs. He has over 2,200 RBIs. The only person he's behind is Hank Aaron. And so, um, yeah, I mean, he's great on every dimension as a hitter. And I agree with Shane. It's just he gets no war from his, uh, basically, none from his fielding play. Um, Guys, also, real, real quickly, on our, what what's our sense of – how much credit a guy should get for RBIs above and beyond um, his slugging percentage. So Um, I mean, my sense is very little above and beyond his slugging because it's entirely about the kind of context in which he hit it. And, you know, I think it, it you know, it's sort of dis it would disproportionately favor players that are already on, on good teams, basically. I mean, you know, it's still, again, it's it's still a record of what happened. They still batted those runs in. And, you know, obviously they get credit for doing that, but I don't think it has much value. I I think it doesn't have much value for me as kind of measuring their inherent baseball ability as slugging percentage. Presumably people, people who believe in clutchiness would disagree with you. Is that right? Right. Okay. I was going to say, Albert, no, again, I, you know, right. I, I mean, it, it doesn't even evolve if, if they, again, they are, they're facing context where there's just tons of runners on base. It's not necessarily, they're not necessarily even more clutch. So this is my point. Yeah. You're saying it's, like something it's all like about- slugging, slugging percentage when there's runners on base versus slugging percentage when there's not, when they're not, that would be a better measure of quote unquote clutch, I think. Nice. Okay. Just to let yeah. you know, um, uh, no, David, no, Shane, uh, just Shane, I, I think Matt, I'm sorry, Eric, one second, buddy, hang on. Matt just reminded us that, you know, it, and actually this is a good empirical question. There's probably clear answers to how much more hittable your pitches are when uh, people are on base versus not on base. Like you get pitched to, oh, to for differently sure. in some sense. Yeah. I mean, there's also, you know, I mean, you, 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 it's, if, if, if there's people on base ahead of you more consistently than on other teams, those are uh, probably good players themselves. And therefore you're getting more protection in the line. You know, I mean, there's a lot of kind of yeah, influences yeah. there kind of beyond what you're doing. Okay. Eric, you've been trying to jump in. No, no, no. All I was going to comment on is uh, Albert Pujols is 33rd all time in slugging percentage. Um, two active players are higher. Mike Trout's 11th all time. Aaron Judge is 13th all time in slugging percentage. Um, and also just give you an idea, as far as I can see on this list, Hank Aaron is also the only person that had more at bats than pool holes. So give an example, Babe Ruth hit 714 home runs in 10,626 plate appearances. Uh, pool holes has hit 700 home runs in 13,023 plate appearances. Yeah. Right. So I think you have to look at that as well. Uh, but no, look, that's not diminish what no, he's done. No, no. Well, you give. I mean, there is credit for just getting a lot of at bats. I mean, that alone. I mean, that's just career longevity is an accomplishment. And a lot of people would say the last five years, except for this year, which has been better. Uh, Pujols has absolutely gotten. Um, you know, he's not had a great last five years. This is his best year, at least in the last six or seven years. And if he didn't have the great thirteen or fourteen years before that he probably would have been cut or not been on a team. And so his longevity was allowed. 
by, and I agree with Shane, by 10 of the greatest years you'll ever see a player have consecutively. Him, was it, Frank, Frank and Thomas, I don't think, I, I also Ted Williams. Think, yeah. These guys had just incredible 10-year runs. Incredible. Yeah, and so, I, don't th- I don't think he would have gotten through those 10. I think he probably would have retired earlier if he wasn't able to DH for all those seasons as well. Just because, you know, I mean, being out in the field exposes you to injury and wear much more. What That's, that's interesting. Um, what role did his contract play? If I remember correctly, he, he was one of these guys who signed one of these monster was it when he moved from the cards to the angels, they yeah. signed him for like a long, not only lucrative, but like long, even yeah. though he was already kind of old. Do I have oh, a 10 year contract? He had a 10 yeah. year contract that ended, I think it was a year ago. So he, he, matter of fact, this is a good exemplar for the next topic, which is Aaron judge, which is, you know, he's still stuck. If you'd like on 60, I think he had 58 when we spoke last week, he had two, but then hasn't hit one in six games. Judge is the same age. Now I checked as Pujols was when Pujols signed his 10-year contract. So now the question is, Judge wants, people say, give Judge a 10-year contract. Well, Shane's always predicted this. Judge, I mean, uh, Pujols was good for, really good for five or six of those years. Not so good for four of those years. And so that's the question. Do you want to give Aaron Judge 10 years and $500 million when you know, you basically know, especially it might even be more so for Judge given his size. I'm sure the statistics would say someone of Judge's size, as big as Pujols is, he's small (laughs) compared to Aaron Judge. So an easy argument could be made. You might get six years of really good baseball out of Judge, who's 30 now, and maybe you'd get four years of you wish you didn't, but it might be worth it. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think Judge is even more kind of has like I I think his injury history is more uh, he's had more injuries sort of in the last few years than Pujols did before signing that contract. At the same time, modern medicine continues to advance. And so, you know, maybe longer careers are going to become more more probable. Well, speaking of that, what is the attribution for why he would have an outstanding year on the heels of four or five average years, years where if he wasn't in that contract, he might have not remained in the league. What's the best explanation for why the blip up here at the end? The angels are cursed. <laughs> um, well, they could be bad without being cursed, I suppose. They could have negative effects on players without being cursed, I suppose. Okay, right, the, angel, guess, yeah. the angels, the angels are the explanation. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that's the story on the home run hitting side of things, but we're down to what? Like the last two weeks of the regular season, something like that? Um, nine, ten, nine games left. Nine, nine games yeah. left. All right. So... What's interesting? What do you want to learn? What are we going to learn? What are you paying attention to in these last nine days other than Aaron Judge's home run count? Well, to me, the biggest thing is the Mets-Braves race because, you know, this is the Shane Jensen rule. Um, You don't win the division. Your odds of winning go down by half, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, specifically here, it's not just winning the division. It's winning that division comes with a buy because yeah, the yeah, records are high teams, enough. Yeah. Right, two teams got a buy. We know the joy about getting that buy that's key. Right. Yeah, yeah. We, right. It, for example, the um and the, the the third uh best division winner doesn't get a buy. So their advantage is just that they play at home against the third wild card team. But the Mets Braves winner will be the second best record in the National League. Yeah. They'll get a buy, which is a huge obvious advantage. So that's what uh-huh. I'm paying attention to as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm also just in terms of individual players. I, I mean, I, I we do focus an awful lot on the AL East and some of the stuff going on there. I just want to kind of 
draw attention to what Paul Goldschmidt has been doing this year as well. I mean, he's probably going to win the MVP in the National so hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I know because I listen to our show sometimes real time that Paul Goldschmidt plays for the St. Louis Cardinals. How about that for dropping some knowledge on you people? Damn, dude. Wow. <laughs> Somebody did their homework. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, it, spot on. Spot on. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Got it. Hold on. Tell me, you got to know, guys, most of what I know about baseball is the AL East because when I'm not listening to you schmoes talk about it, I'm listening to my buddies who are Orioles fans. And so tell me something about Goldschmidt. Well, I, I mean, everything I about he's, he's an interesting case. I've been kind of tracking him all season. I mean, he's having an excellent season. I mean, again, Aaron what does Judges, he play? How long has he been there? Give us, well, give so us he's, he's been in St. Louis for a few seasons. He's, he he's the first baseman. He's been in St. Louis for a few seasons after many excellent seasons in Arizona. Um, and he's, a, you know, we, we talked a little bit about uh, kind of, you know, the with Pujols, the Hall of Fame. Paul Goldschmidt is somebody I've been tracking all season because he's, I think, a, a person who's kind of already on the edge of the Hall of Fame. Jeez. Uh, Eric he, is I, looking skeptically. I'm, Eric, just, Eric. I'm looking at his career numbers. He, mm-hmm. This is his 11th season or 12th yep. season. He's got 315 career home runs, 1,039 RBIs. He's got 1,744 hits. And he's got an OPS, which is actually his best argument is OPS of 918. So that's going to be his best argument. Uh, Shane, I'm sure, can look up what his career war is because that's also going to be there. But in traditional metrics, in my view, he needs to get to 400 home runs. He probably needs to get to 2,500 hits. um, And then he's got a – oh, I can see his war right here. Yeah, it's Uh, 58 or so. 58. Well, if he gets to 70-plus war – Yep. Then and two thousand five hundred hits and four hundred yeah. plus home runs. Absolutely, then he's a Hall of Famer. But he has well, thirty five. Sh- that, that's why I mean. So again, and I, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that seventy WAR is kind of I think the sort of like line in the sand where almost almost all players above it that are Correct. kind of known steroid users are in the do make it to the Hall of Fame. Right. And he has got four or five years to do it because he's thirty five yeah. years old. So That's he right. can do it. He can get he's, he's twelve. He's twelve WAR away, basically, from that line. And I'll just mention he his WAR this year was seven point six. Is seven point six. So he has yep. another couple seasons like this one, or you know, three or four seasons even of like you know five WAR. He's there. Yep, I th- I think he's like to say obviously third tier, but yeah, I can see a scenario where he's got twenty five hundred hits, four hundred home runs. 1500 RBIs, I can absolutely see him as a potential Hall of Famer. Sure. So it looks to me like you guys mentioned the cards um, have not just Goldschmidt, but multiple other players that are what? What was it that we were talking about? You said future Hall of Famers. Basically, I think think St. Louis actually, and it's pretty unique. There's no other team. I think St. Louis has four future Hall of Famers. Name them on it Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado. Uh, Yadier Molina and Albert Pujols. Well, two of those are locks, and the other two, I would say, I mean, that's Pujols. Are you, are you calling Molina a lock? I think so. Yeah, I mean, so tell, so talk about the talk about the team that they are. Looks like they're going to win their division. They'll yeah. win the Central yeah, and all, yeah. unless they just collapse here at the end. No, and I mean, then they're, they're going to they're they'll be the third division winner. So they'll get the. They'll get They'll the probably get the Phillies. They'll probably be the Phillies against the Yeah, Cardinals. probably be the Phillies. Okay. So with that kind of with four Hall of Famers filling out whatever it is, 
what does that make nine spots? Cause no, they they don't DH in the NL, right? Or do they DH in the they NL? Do now? Now. They do now. Oh, it's a new world. Okay. Four of the 10 people are future hall of play famers. Why are they kind of a, well, a Yadier Molina. I mean, again, he, he's a future hall of famer. Cause he's he maybe past a his gold prime. glove catcher for like, I don't know, four or 40 years or whatever he's played for. Um, I mean, that guy contributes literally negative war offensively. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, I mean, you know, Yadier Molina is not pushing them towards the playoffs. I mean, I, 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 I take nothing away from that guy's career, but this is, you know, they, they, he is below replacement level. What's so, actually interesting about him, Shane, is I didn't realize this. So he's got more hits than I thought, and he averages practically a hit a game. I mean, he's played 2,200 games, and he's got basically 2,200 hits, <laughs> which is actually a lot more impressive than I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, but Where I agree- is that in the distribution of long-lived baseball players? Oh, oh, Molina? Oh, my goodness. I mean, no, just I, like I, I a, a hit per game. Like, just that simple statistic, hit per game. Where is that in the that percentage? I'm going to I'm gonna guess. I don't know. Or the I'm average. Say 85th percentile. Yeah, that's probably, percentile. that sounds about right. Okay. That sounds okay. about right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, all right. What, tell, talk about the Mets, because when I look at the betting odds, one, I see your Yankees are only roughly tied for third shortest odds with both the Dodgers and the Astros shorter. And then you had the Mets and Yankees down there. There was a lot of noise about the Mets earlier in the season. Have I just missed it? Or is there less noise? What, how are they shaping up for the postseason? And is there much interest there? Oh, I think there's a ton of interest. I mean, I, I think fans of the New York Mets are super excited about them. I mean, they've had some injuries pop up here and there during the season. And I think their odds are probably lower because, as, as Eric kind of mentioned earlier, they're still kind of in that race for the division. So, you know, I mean, they, you know, if they don't win that division, cut their odds in half just because right. they have to play okay. an extra series. Yeah, well, also, yeah, there's right. this team that's about to win 115,000 games in there. I mean, the yeah. Dodgers right now. That's the thing that, and they're also their odds would be lower than the Yankees, just because I think the Dodgers are stronger than the Astros, not by a large margin, but by enough of a margin that would lower the Mets' odds versus, let's say, the Yankees' odds. Let's say they both end up as the two seed. Yeah, I would put the Yankees' odds as shorter because the Dodgers are slightly stronger. Yeah, and I'd even call kind of the. I, I mean, this is not a particularly objective statement, but I would call the. Um, AL wildcard teams a little bit more intimidating to me Agreed. than the NL wildcard teams. Oh, I but I mean, that, that other than the brave, other than the loser, the Mets Braves. Uh, but I mean, that that probably is just showing my AL bias a little bit there. No, I think the Blue Jays and the uh, maybe not as much Blue Jays, Mariners, and the the Blue Jays and the Rays would be yeah. very formidable opponents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So finally, before we wrap up and move on, what how are the Phillies looking and, and the, the hometown team? They're, they were looking pretty good there for a while. Y'all are both kind of scowling at the moment. Well, I mean, they they're, they're go- they look like they're going to make the playoffs as the last wild card team. So that, I mean, you know, that's that's obviously pretty awesome. That's progress. That's better. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, will they consider will they consider that a success because they really put some chips on this year, right? Yeah, I mean, they are one of the top five payrolls in all of Major League Baseball, so they really kind of you know, the expectation kind of should at least be the playoffs at that, you know, I mean, well, here's what it know, is. I one mean, of the higher payroll teams is in their division. So, I mean, if you had to kind of tell, if you told me ahead of the season that the Mets won the division and the Phillies got the wild card, I'm like, Oh, that probably is about what I expect. So yeah, I, here's I, the way, yeah. Here's the way I would look at it. Also, we talked about this a lot in baseball. Can Aaron Nola go out there and be dominant? Yes, he could. 
Could Noah Syndergaard go out there and be dominant? Yes, he could. Could Zach Eflin or Zach Wheeler go out there and be dominant? Maybe. So that's what it's going to take. They're going to need three dominant pitchers to go out there and be at the top of their game. Not one dominant pitcher, three. And whose dominant pitchers do you trust? Theirs or the Mets or the Dodgers? That's yeah, I mean, the being the sixth seed does mean that, you know, if, even if they have the good fortune of beating, say, the Cardinals and getting through the wild card round, they are the ones that would be lined up to play the Dodgers. Assuming the Dodgers, you know, after, you know, in the second round. And that's, that's tough. I mean, you know, oh, I, no, I, I still believe in the coin flip kind of usual, the kind of usual coin flip model, but the Dodgers are obviously no, far and away the best a, team in baseball. I agree. They have a puncher's chance though. Cause, cause in theory, Nola and Syndergaard at their peak performance, you can win. Yeah. And so that's their chance. So by the way, isn't this one of the only remaining interesting issues in baseball that the Phillies are by no means a lock for that sixth spot. The Brewers are only one game. Oh, not at all. So, I mean, there's a lot of drama. There's looks like he's really just a two team race. Well, that's not true. The Padres are up a couple on them. So there's kind of a three team race for two spots right. is the way it looks. Yeah. The Padres yeah, I mean, and the has and the at like 86% or so to make the playoffs. Um, that has to be too high. They've only got a one game lead with seven left. Why would it be? Why would it be a tougher strength of schedule or something in front of? Them? Yeah, I'd have to actually look at their schedule to see who they're playing. Okay. But, uh, but, um, I mean, you know, beyond beyond that kind of beyond the sort of wild, still some wild card uncertain playoff uncertainty among the NL. There's still, you know, as we've been discussing the seating actually makes a much bigger difference this year than in past years as well. And so some of these other races, like what's going on between the Mariners and Blue Jays and Rays has consequence still to the playoffs, even though those teams are all pretty pretty much locked into the playoffs. Okay. All right, guys. Well, fun stuff. We're, We're into the really heated part of it. It'll be fun to keep an eye on, obviously. For the next couple of weeks, let's uh, let's grab a break. We'll come back and talk a little football. This has been Q1. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey here, hosting with my colleagues, longtime collaborators and. Fellow faculty members, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner is away today. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every week. You guys can jump into our conversation via Twitter, via email. We love to hear from you. Twitter, our handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. And we sometimes get comments, suggestions, ideas. Welcome them. Welcome them up there. Also, we have a mailbag via email, and we love hearing from you there as well. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send, and we get as much of, of it as possible on the air. So let us hear from you. Critiques, suggestions, praise, love, whatever you got, we're here for your email. All right, gentlemen, we just talked baseball in Q1. We've got interviews in Q3 and 4. That means we have one Q here, one quarter here in front of us to talk about everything else, which notably includes football. So around the NFL, pretty interesting week, I have to say. I was away from the TV, and I look up the scores, and I'm like, oh, my God, what happened here? Do we all expect the uh, Dolphins and Eagles to be the best teams in the NFL at this point? Mm -hmm. I I think all, all of us did, right? 
Is the lesson that we just, oh, I mean, every year, even though we say not to do it, even though we're saying it as we're reacting, we're saying, don't overreact, don't overreact. We still overreact. And we think the Bills are going to be like, whoever's 2-0 and looking good is just going to be the best team in the history of the NFL. And then all of a sudden, they let's lose. Not put, let's not necessarily put, by the way, the Eagles yet in the same thing. Let's think who the Dolphins have beaten. The Dolphins have beaten the Bills. They beat the uh, Patriots, I believe. Yeah. And they beat the Ravens. Yes. Right? Okay. The Eagles have beaten the Lions, the Commanders, <laughs> and the Vikings. Yeah, the, the Eagles have one of the softest schedules yeah. I've ever seen, and it keeps going. We're actually not going to know if the Eagles are good until the playoffs, I think. Hold on. I thought the Vikings were decent. Test. They're decent, but I'm just saying they're they're decent this year. I mean, oh, Vikings, are the, every every Vikings game comes down to a coin flip at the end. Right. I mean, not that one, I guess, but almost every. But Vikings I'm I'm more this. confident right now that, I, and by the way, I've seen this story before with the Dolphins where they start good, don't it? But I'm more confident at the moment that they're a very good team than I am with the Eagles. Because I think the Eagles just haven't played anybody good yet. But I will say this. I was at the Eagles-Vikings game, and the Eagles looked fantastic. And I saw a lot of the game the other day. The Eagles looked fantastic. So, I mean, they look like a really good team. And Jalen Hurts looks like a real quarterback. He can really play. And that defense looks amazing. I mean, I think, you know, here's how about this for like a next-gen stat. Like, what is the waiting time distribution until a team – is in positive passing yardage for a game because the commanders, <laughs> the commanders weren't in pause. had negative passing yard passing yards until the middle of the third quarter. No, yeah. no. What yep. in the world? Well, they, yeah. I, I, they showed a, a graphic comparison. I was watching this game cause I was forced to um, by, you know, being in Philadelphia and it was the, it was three, it was something like 353 passing yards to negative one. Mm-hmm. Obviously, okay. sacks count as negative yeah. passing yards. Sa- so, I mean, the, re- the the answer is they didn't complete hardly any passes, and sacks count in your passing yard. But I think I think the thing that we also know is the Ravens are good, the Bills are good, and the Dolphins have beaten good teams. But we'll see what yeah. happens with yeah. the Eagles. The other the other score that had to shock you, had to shock everybody, was the Jags beating the Chargers. Yeah, I don't understand. Thirty-eight still- to ten in Los Angeles. I mean, it wasn't, this-, this was a, a road. Yeah, game. it's 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 for me. The AFC West is so fascinating because we had this as this like juggernaut, one of the strongest divisions ever created, and <laughs> three of the teams are disasters right now. So did that right. did that outcome? It's a good observation, Shane. I'm curious. Did that game say more about the Jags or the Chargers? I think it's said a little bit about both. I do think the Jags are well on their way. I mean, the Jags are demonstrating actually ha- that they might have an elite defense. And certainly mm-hmm. Trevor Lawrence looks much better than he did. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I think the Jags are looking, have really turned it around quickly. You know, I think mm-hmm. Doug Peterson is coach versus, um, you know, uh, versus Urban Meyer's coach has been a huge difference. Um, what what was Herbert's situation? Because the last time we saw him, he was um, he was practically knocked out of the game. And we yeah, no, and I mean, like I do think I, I've got you know I I know we've kind of been a fan of Staley on this show because he takes chances and is unconventional and analytics, Com- but he looks absolutely incompetent as a coach, or almost like mal- it's, I think it's malpractice to keep th- sending Herbert out there. Oh. He was, I mean, he was he he's injured. He has broken rib cartilage or whatever, you know. And he started. <sighs> he does not look as effective. And he was still playing 
when they were down 28 points to Jaguars in the fourth quarter. Oh, is quarter. that right? Really? Wow. I guess, that, that, that reminds you know, me of, I mean, Shane. Why, that reminds why me of, you do that to a franchise quarterback? I don't know. Do you remember, was it, who was the quarterback in, in, in Washington when they had Griffin and they almost, they might've just ruined Griffin yeah. by keeping him in the game when he was yeah. injured. Was that Shanahan? Or am I making that up? It might've been Shanahan. Um, that, that was the worst coaching malpractice I've seen in players health in, in, in a long time anyway. Well, Eric, you managed to go this far without talking about the game that I, you were scheduled to be at. And it's one of the only games that I saw on Sunday. And I saw the part that you must have been so excited about Brady leading an 89 yard drive to score the would be tying touchdown at the end of the game, but then being having to convert a two point conversion to tie it with like 11 seconds left or whatever. False start. Was it a false start? Delay of game. Delay of delay, game. Delay of game. They called a timeout that they didn't have. They, well, they, they had it coming. Well, they tried to call they, they, they yeah. almost, they more or less had delay of game to play before. But the, to, to rub salt in the wound, it looked like the play they had called was going to go for the conversion. Yeah. But they get knocked back five yards. They aren't able to complete the pass. They don't get the conversion. They don't tie the game. So it's super anticlimactic. But that had to be a ball to be in the stadium while Brady just drove them straight down the field with all those completions, man. Yeah, no, I mean, the issue is that um, I didn't feel confident uh, on a two point conversion just because um, the Bucks had nobody open during the entire game. Really? In other words, guys were open by a little bit. Brady threw a lot of great passes. Um, there were two horrific fumbles, one by Richard, uh, Perriman and the other one by, uh, by uh, Russell Gage that really cost the Bucks tremendously in the second half. The Packers didn't score at all in the second half of that game. Zero, zero points in the second half. Um, the Bucks defense looked great after the first quarter of that game. They kind of adjusted. Yeah, no, it was an exciting game to be at. Um, but Again, what it shows me is it's what we've talked about a lot. And in fact, I think you've attributed this, uh, K, to Eric Eager, which is, think about it, when your top three receivers are out, yeah. now number four becomes number, forget having a second good receiver. I mean, I don't know who the best Bucks receiver was on the field. I guess it was Rashard Berriman was the best. And then probably Gage. Russell Gage, but I, I mean, whatever. So I mean, Fournette. <laughs> Fournette might have been so, uh, or might have been Bray, Cameron Bray, the tight end, whatever. They had a bunch of guys that nobody was threatened deep. Um, and then what happened is, unfortunately, the Bucks have been succeeding with the run. If you can't throw the ball, you can't really run the ball. So that's what I expected in the game. I expected a very low scoring game. The Packers offense is worse than I thought. The Packers defense is better than I thought. And this is about what I thought we'd get from the Bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, mm-hmm. kind of going forward, the one reason for sort of optimism, I think, is that most of the kind of, I think, offensive stagnation that the Bucks currently are dealing with are, is due to injury. And some of those injuries won't necessarily aren't, aren't, you know, season long. So I think they will get better on offense and they appear to still have that elite defense. And so, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily I wouldn't look at uh, this game and sort of say, you know, I, I don't think it, it particularly moves the needle on what we expect for the Bucks uh, moving forward this season. I mean, it's fact, still great point. I think most of the uh, discussion after the game is that the Packers went down in people's assessment and no particular change in the Bucks. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. Okay, interesting. Well, listen, speaking of the Bucks, we have two, you know, ex- extremely interesting matchups this coming weekend. 
And the you know even more interesting because the teams, Jaguars versus Eagles is what you're going to talk about, right? Hey, well, Giants and Eagles <laughs> well, is interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, a, a, that's a game of the week. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but the the high high profile games are Buffalo, Baltimore, and Casey at Tampa. And Eric has made the point that in both those situations, some team is coming out of their two and two, which is way below what would have been hoped for or expected out of pretty much all four of those teams. So, which of those games are you most interested in, and why? I mean, I think I'm most interested in uh, the Bills versus Ravens uh, just because I'm really intrigued. I mean, the Bills have such a good defense um, and a very mobile quarterback. The Baltimore doesn't have as good of a defense this year, even though we're so used to them having amazing elite defenses is like the one year where they don't. But they have, you know, the most mobile quarterback I think I've ever watched. And so just kind of seeing, you know, schematically and sort of on the lines how that that game shakes out, I'm super intrigued by. So, yeah, I mean, I I guess if I had to pick one, I'd pick that one just because, again, Casey against Tampa, similar to this past week, it's it's not Tampa at full strength. I mean, Mike Evans will be back, I guess. But like, you know, I I think that's. You know, at, at the point the teams are currently at, it's unfortunately a bit of a mismatch. There is a chance that Chris Godwin and Julio Jones are also both playing. So if that's game, if that's the game, yeah. then that becomes a much yeah. more interesting game. Mm-hmm. Also, well, I, I mean, the Chiefs. I mean, the Chiefs are all of a sudden looking shaky. I, based on the way Eric characterized the Bucks defense, I think a shaky Mahomes and Chiefs offense going into that Tampa. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I never believe rumors of a shaky Chiefs offense. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, we'll, yeah. don't get sucked into that for the like fifth year in a row. But, uh, but, but I mean, okay. I do agree. I mean, that's like, reasonable. This, this is the first time we've they've, they've played each other since that Super Bowl. So it would be intrigued to kind of just sort of see how the Chiefs have kind of, you know, how the Chiefs approach it, uh, how the Bucks approach it defensively. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think that is, also an intriguing matchup, no doubt. I just, I'd love mm-hmm. if, you know, I'd love if both teams were kind of at full strength for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, good fun on the NFL side of things. We also had a lot of college football, of course, and we've got an interesting weekend coming up. Anything in particular catch your eye on Saturday? What do you want to talk about, Oklahoma loser? Uh, well, it's more fun than talking about Texas. That's for damn sure. I mean, <laughs> You know, there for a minute, it looked like A&M was going to lose, too. And so it was going to take it was be a lot of solace for Longhorns to have both the Ags and Sooners go down. But, yeah, K-State, I mean, this is one of the best runs. I bet this is one of the great runs against any great team in any decade. I mean, K-State's beaten OU about as often as they've been beaten, as they've beaten K-State over the last 10 years, even though the average line is at least a touchdown over that decade. And, you know, these guys lost to – Tulane the week before. I mean, it's amazing that they went in there and did that. Adrian Martinez is one of the most interesting stories in college football this year. Kind of the maligned, long maligned quarterback in Nebraska moving down to K-State. And man, I mean, the the Wildcats are a Longhorn's best friend over the last 10 years of trouble they've given the Sooners. That's for sure. And yes, we needed some distraction after dropping one in Lubbock. And, and it's not just losing a game. It's one of those games, guys, where, you know, there's, we talked a little bit, Eric, you were talking after one or two weeks in the NFL, how does it change your projection? And there are two factors. Everything is depressed because you've lost a game. So your whole projection has to come down, but then you're also going to update on the underlying strength. Right. And, and the question is how much do you update? And so you go into Lubbock and drop that game. And it's like, Oh, you know, we didn't need that conference loss first conference game. That's bad. But then worse 
is it looked really bad on the coaches and looked bad on the coaches in a way that was reminiscent of last year. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all the confidence and momentum that this coaching staff has had is on the table. And I'm not saying abandon ship, but the question has been called. And it's one of those, it's, it's just one of those weeks where everything kind of feels different on the other side of it. Maybe it shouldn't, maybe it's an overreaction, but that's the way it feels. And that's, that's kind of where you are when you have a staff. It's only the second year of, of a coaching staff there. We're still learning what, what we got. I'm also excited about the games this week. I think there's a lot of interesting games. Look, I think everybody knows I hate Alabama. I would be so thrilled if Arkansas beats them. And Arkansas- hold on, Eric. Eric, I, I I might not have known that in quite those terms. Is that just a continuation of your love of Group of Five teams? Are they just the apotheosis of the Power Five, and so therefore you hate them the most? You no, know, there's something like you know. Maybe it's because I think, you know, Alabama has the most or in many years, the most talent. And I think they get the benefit of that in this. They obviously get the benefit of that on the field. But I think I just don't like the way they coach. I didn't like the way I thought Saban's actually become a better coach the last couple of years when he's opened up his offense a little oh, bit. Yeah, for you sure. Know, I think he just, you know, lived for years on we're just dominant Alabama athletes. We're just going to run over the other team. Yeah. Um, I think it's a fascinating, no, but I don't like Alabama, but it's not because of Alabama per se. I have nothing against it. Um, I just, maybe just cause they're such a dominant team every year. Yeah, I don't right. like them that much. Like and I'd way- love to see Arkansas win, but you even talked about this. And maybe this is about the norm. I'd love to go back to Massey Peabody over the last 20 years and see what the spread would be when between the two and the 20th team, because that's what we're getting. Alabama, it's at Arkansas, so it gives Arkansas a little bit, but maybe 15 to 17 points, which is basically the range here would be on a neutral field. Maybe that's about right between two and 20, and this year is not abnormal. You know, I don't know that two and 20 is especially abnormal this year, just, you know, guessing. There are some abnormalities, but I don't know the two, two and 20 is. The abnormalities are the separation between the top three and the next. And then the other abnormality is kind of this, the scrunching together of a bunch of teams in that second, really 15 or so. That's what's so unusual. So if Clemson, Clemson were playing Arkansas, what do you think the spread would be? Clemson and Arkansas. So I'm, I'm doing now, I could have these in front of me and I don't right now. So I'm just guessing. So, the top teams are going to be in the low 30s, and Clemson did not look great against Wake. I mean, that was another very fun game nope. on Saturday. It was fun, you know, unless you were pulling for Wake, in which it was just brutally painful. But um, Clemson has been floating around four or five, and they probably are, you know, five or six points below the number three team. So I'm going to put them at 24 and 25, something like that. And Arkansas, I don't know where Arkansas probably is, 15, 16. So. Eight or nine point game yeah, between like five that. and 20. Yeah. And it's I'm, interesting I'm to, hear, to hear you kind of describe this kind of distribution of, you know, sort of like the kind of latent ability among the top, say, 15 or 17 or 18 teams you were discussing. Like historically, you would, it's been kind of closer. And I mean, probably not linear, but it's been closer to linear. Whereas it sounds like it's almost like a step function this year, where it's like the third, top three teams and then a big drop. And then all the other, and then the next 12, 15 teams, essentially almost equal. 
Yeah, it's I mean almost equal of course is a is a big statement, but let me show you what we're seeing these days on if you aggregate across the power rankings. And um what I've got is Nate Manzo or Nate I think it's Nate Manzo. Nate apologies for mispronouncing your Nate name if I am, but the handle on Twitter is at CFB Nate. Nate's done this really neat thing of just aggregating a bunch of power rankings. You grab six or seven power rankings in college football and aggregates them. And he does some nice visualization. So for example, he'll throw everybody up there, but he'll put each conference on the line. So you not only see the overall distribution, but you see each conference. And one of the changes he's made, I think this might be the first week that he's made it is, oh gosh, he's got this in percentile, which is not what we wanted. Um, I thought he was running now in, oh, that's the wrong one. I'll give you a different screen here, guys. He's He moved from percentiles to actual point differences, which of course captures the captures the actual spread mm. much much better oh, here so you, we can go. See, you can see how i just flipped from his original um, numbers to now so it, this is actually a really interesting methodological point that the by using percentiles which is a very easy thing to communicate it scrunches the fundamental non-linearities in yeah. these distributions it really pulls those that right tail in it's designed it, to to be it's designed to, to outliers it, but we actually want to see the outlying this year yeah, and, but but shane it's not just that it's also that it, it spaces out the scrunchy guys in the middle mm-hmm. and so if you get back to the true power rankings which are point differentials and he had to do a little bit of a you know a little behind the scenes thing to do that but now you see the real big right tail from the top and you see how scrunchy things are in the middle and i'm telling you it's a great way to get a great look who's to know whether bill's rankings or fpi or, or brian Fremo's are best just ensemble them and and Nate's going to do that for you and you get a great sense. So I've thrown this up and you can see, you can see the gap between those top three, all of which are above 30 and the number four team, which in this aggregation is Michigan in the low twenties. So it's a 10 point gap between number three and four. Right. And then you have to go down like 20 more teams to go. Like if you took Michigan and said, let's subtract 10 points, there's gotta be almost 20 teams between there, I mean, Michigan to, you know, basically almost UCLA mm. is the difference between, you know, Michigan and Alabama. Or yeah. even more apropos, Michigan to Arkansas, essentially. Right, Which Michigan to Arkansas. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So another neat thing, just to point this out while we're looking at guys, is since Nate put each team in a conference on a line, you can see how the conferences line up. And something that is super interesting this year um, – Mandel and Feldman were talking about this on their on their podcast this week. There's no bad teams in the Big 12 since KU has decided to start playing football again. They've got a new coach there, and he's really turned the program around in the last two years. They're undefeated. They just beat Duke. They're four and zero. Oh, and um, the the in Nate's aggregation here, his ensemble here, they're above average team. They're their, their power ranking is like 0.3 and a half or three and a half or something like that. So the absolute worst team in the big 12 would be, you know, the, I don't know what that is. The 13th team in the sec, it'd be almost just below halfway of the big 10. It would be just below halfway of the pac 12. And it would be like almost smack middle in the half of the ACC. There is no, but it's possible. These guys, Bruce and Stewart were speculating is it possible for every team in a conference to make a bowl? You have to be 500 to do that. It, you know, if they win their non-conference games, it is possible. So it'll be an interesting thing to follow. It's a look at that team. The whole conference, the whole conference is scrunched between Oklahoma at you know plus eighteen and KU. This is a really uh, again. I'm, I'm glad you pointed uh, us and the listeners out. This is a fantastic visualization. 
Isn't it though? I think they did such a good job with this in so many ways. Again, one, he's just ensembling six or seven different models because who knows what's best. And so he's putting them all together. He's putting them on a metric now with point differential that is both easy to communicate and captures the nonlinearities, which is great. And then he's putting every conference on a line so you can see the relative strength of the conference and the relative. I I I like the color coding too, for those people that can't see it. You've got, you know, in some sense, the different tiers of teams uh, color coded. I, I right. think this is fantastic. I think it's, I think the point you pointed out, Kate, which is the obvious, the first thing we always looked at is to the spread between the top three. But I agree with you, the lack of variance in the Big 12 and everyone being above zero is just as notable and absolutely dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of fun, a good way to kind of check yourself on where teams are. Let's just take a quick look. Eric highlighted the Alabama Arkansas game. You've also got Kentucky going into Ole Miss. Ole Miss hasn't played anybody, so we don't know if they're any good, but they're actually favored. You know, Kentucky's the top 10 team, but Ole Miss is home and favored by six and a half. Well, let's go to this. Let's go to this picture right here again. Uh, Ole Miss against Kentucky. So they're obviously in the SEC. Kentucky's in the SEC, aren't they? Yeah. So we've got Ole Miss sitting at about the third or fourth top team in the SEC. They're at plus 17 or something. Kentucky is another three or four SEC teams down, even though they're a top 10 team in the rankings. They're looking at like plus 12 or something. So that looks about like a six point spread or so, six and a half point spread on a neutral site. Now that game is in Oxford. And so it should be, you know, we'd pick it a little bit more. So Nate's got a, I don't know, a two, three point edge there on Ole Miss against the line. He would lay the points. His ensemble would lay the points. Uh, the Clemson NC State game is kind of a similar sort of spread situation, right? Yeah, so so Clemson uh, actually, I had it. Uh, the, NC State is going to Clemson for that game. Yeah, and Clemson didn't look good against Wake last week. They were number five. I don't know where the rankings are right now, but they're coming in as six and a half point favorites. Let's drop down to the SEC. Clemson is the top ranked team in Nate's ensemble, with NC State tied as the second, right on the heels of Florida State as the second or third. That's probably a seven or eight point gap, and then you have the home field. So there's a slight edge there as well. Yeah, the, the ensemble would put us would put an edge on Clemson, happy to lay the points against NC State. But, man, you know, their their quarterback, DJU, looked good for the first time in a while this past weekend. They barely got through Wake. But um, Clemson, might that might have been a turning point for Clemson. A couple of the games of note, also in the SEC, A&M has to go into Mississippi State. Mississippi State, we think, is kind of flying under the radar. They're a super talented, experienced team. Michigan going on the road to Iowa. Iowa can't score touchdowns with their offense anyway, but that's the first real test for Michigan. Many people think they're the fourth best team, you know, the first team after the big three, and they are, in fact, in Nate's ensemble, the fourth best team, giving 10 and a half points to the Hawkeyes. And Washington, sneaky good Washington. Nobody expected they were going to be good this year, or at least not as good as they have been. They might end up being the class of the Pac-12. They're going into Los Angeles. UCLA, a lot of folks like UCLA coming into this year. They've been way off the radar because they haven't played anybody. Washington's giving three and a half to UCLA. Let's look at the Pac-12 on Nate's ensemble real quick. Nicely spread out. Nobody at the very top. Colorado way down low. But where do we have Washington? Third best team in the Pac-12. A couple spots above UCLA. The power rankings would make Washington about a three-point favorite on a neutral field. They're going to be on the road. So the power rankings would have made that about a push. And instead, the, the, the Huskies are giving three and a half. So there's a little bit of an edge on UCLA there. But Washington is a great team. 
to get caught up on this year. Actually, that's a game where you're catching up on both teams because both have been even though we're like four games, I think, for most teams into the college football season, given the lack of competitive games that most teams played. How much uncertainty is there still in the ability of some of these teams? Because they really haven't played anybody good. So how much updating has, like, if we look at this picture based on priors and compared it to this picture based now, how much movement would there be? It's a great question. Of course, we, it'd be great to actually provide the empirical answer to that. We could look at Massey Peabody. Maybe that's a little homework for me to come back and give you the distribution of moves. I think there's been a lot of moves, but there's still a lot of moves to make is the short answer. I mean, you know, we just went through the NFL and talked about how much people had been too cemented in their views after two weeks and how much correction we got in week three. I think the same thing can be said for college football. Um, there's still a lot to learn. But there's been there's been some pretty significant movement. There'll be some more. But there's a, a lot of teams are different than was expected. And a lot of teams we still need to learn about. And a lot of teams high in these rankings that haven't really played anybody, like you said. So we've got a lot to learn yet. Just one last question. If you think, Kate, if the, if the season ended right now, do you think the committee would take um, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, and Michigan? Uh, it's a great question. Um, if it ended now, um, Michigan is high in the polls, obviously, and their wins have been super convincing. They just haven't been against anybody. Clemson really showed some question marks with how much trouble they had at Wake, even though Wake's a very good team. Um, I think it'd be a great debate. But Eric, in some sense, I think the more, you know, the more interesting hypothetical is how much fun this would be if we had the 12-game playoff this year. Of all years recently, it's like, Right. We just don't know who the next batch is. And it would be so much fun to see a real tournament from that next tier of teams. It would be fascinating to see how that evolved. And we're going to get that. But, man, this would, be a, a, would have been a great season. At least that's the way it looks right now. We'll see how scrunched up that next tier remains as we go through the season. All right, guys, just a couple quick minutes on other topics. Um, President's Cup came and went. Um, our boy, Dan Rappaport, our man, Dan Rappaport, covering it for Barstool Sports was a great way to tap into some of it. He has an interesting piece. He's due for Golf Digest and SI, the 18 takeaways. He has a great piece up on Barstool Sports on 18 takeaways. Spieth went 5-0, and as Eric has pointed out. Um, they won. It, it probably should have been bigger than it was. It was uncomfortable, I think, at parts on Sunday afternoon. Eric, any takeaways from the President's Cup? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. had better players. And so uh, I'm not surprised, you know, especially with live golf and who's out and everything else. And also we have people that have played together. And I think that does make a difference in alternate shot and, uh, you know, those types of plays. So I think. So Eric, Eric, hold on, say say a little bit more about that, because obviously we have the Ryder Cup. I think it's next summer in Rome, if I'm not mistaken. It'll, It'll be so much fun because this young generation of American golfers, should be heavily favored, presumably, in Europe, which they haven't haven't won in Europe in decades. Yeah, no, I think we have the best golfers and we have golfers that have played together in this format. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the stalwart Europeans are either old or a lot of them have moved to live golf. And so I think there's going to be a challenge. I think the U.S. is going to be heavily favored in team competitions going forward. And I think the U.S. has won the last seven or something President's Cup or eight. So they've they've got a long history there. And they've also done well. Obviously, we did extremely well in the last Ryder Cup as well. 
Mm-hmm. Eric, any words at, here at the end on end of Q2 on Federer calling it a day? Obviously, the scenes with Nadal there at the end were just unbelievable. Federer is fantastic. Uh, I think the only 10-second comment is um, Nadal has a winning record against him, big, and even though Federer won seven of the last eight, I didn't realize this. Up until about two years ago, Federer had a winning record against Djokovic. And it was only in the last two years did or three years did Djokovic pass him. So I'm now indifferent. I think Nadal is clearly my top of the big three, and I'm going to put an even between Federer and Djokovic. <laughs> an and to the extent that fame or kind of contribution to the sport, I think that gives Federer no the edge. There no you doubt. go. All right. So Shane's invoking some of those Hall of Fame considerations. It's partially right. subjective. All right, guys, that has been Q2. We still have two more quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the second half of the show now, we've got a short interview for Q3 before rolling into our usual interview segment in Q4. We are delighted to welcome onto the show Joseph Applebaum. Joe is the president of the New York Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association. They have an interesting development we want to hear more about. We want to promote it a little bit. Joe is a longtime listener of the show, and he kibitzes, commiserates with some of our some of our people. And so we're delighted to have a chance to talk to you. Joe, afternoon. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kate. It's great to be here. Appreciate your making time. I'm curious to hear about the competition, but first, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and about the New York Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association? What is that all about? Why, why is that relevant to our listeners? And how did you get involved? Sure. So I'm the elected president, and I represent 5,000 owners and trainers, probably about 4,500 owners, 500 trainers, who race at the New York Racing Association racetracks, most famously Belmont uh, mm-hmm. Racetrack, Belmont Park, home of the Belmont Stakes, Saratoga, uh, yeah. which is the most important 40 days of racing in the country. Uh, right. We did. Hold on, Joe, 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 why, why? Saratoga, obviously, famous track, beautiful part of the country. Um, why is that the most, 40, most important 40 days? Oh, because we average about uh, $22 million a day in gambling, which is <laughs> <Okay>. far exceeds <laughs> any track in the country uh, by by several standard deviations, by several deviations. Okay, um, okay. You really have the best horses, best jockeys, best trainers from all over the world gravitate there for 40 days in the summer. Got it, got it. Okay, well, um, how did you get involved in this? You're elected. Why do they elect you? What's your background? God, God, God only knows. But here is my background. Uh, this is like my third career. I started right out of college as a football coach, coached all over New England, Hamilton College, Plymouth State College, University of Massachusetts, Hofstra, Northeastern. Sadly, two of those schools don't even have football anymore. <laughs> right, um, but at a great time, was pretty young. But oh, we, at that point, this is like the early 90s. You know, I was using a spreadsheet. I was using Excel to do stuff. And that, like, was way ahead of all the other coaches. Yeah, right. Brian Billick actually wrote a book about using Excel to be a football coach. That's how slow it was back then. Okay. I had always been a horse racing fan. 
have uh, five friends of mine that have been going to Saratoga since the late 80s together, whether it's for the whole summer, for a weekend, for a week. We started buying horses. And I... As, as one does, as one yes. does. Well, you make a score or two in the betting markets and, uh, <laughs> you know, guys chip in a couple bucks here or there. Uh-huh. And I realized that there was almost no analytical approach to it. And, and even the ones, even people who were trying to make analytical uh, judgments were just stymied by the lack of data or the siloing of data or the incredible cost of acquiring data to do even basic um, basic things. Yep. So, sorry. Uh, so I actually started buying horses, started trading horses, buying them young, training them up, getting them to the track, reselling them. Um, hopefully, you know, we've had a, a good amount of success for kind of a boutique style stable over the years. And about uh, seven years ago, I started getting involved in the governance, ran for the board of directors to represent horsemen um, in dealing with the track and the New York Racing Association. And, and here we are. Uh, here we are. Well, listen, yeah. you've crossed paths with some of our favorite people. You've sold a horse to Jeff Cedar and his wife. You've talked to algorithms with Rufus Peabody. And so it's fun to, to talk to someone who's um, been crossing paths with those guys. But let's hear about the contest itself. So let's be, let's make sure we understand our audience understands what's going on. This is a, a data bowl modeled after the NFL's big data bowl. It is underway, but there are still seven weeks to go. $50,000 in prize money, including $20,000 to the winner. You've got until November 10th to jump into this thing. What is it that you're hoping to learn and what is it that the competitors are actually doing? Okay. So we released, uh, tracking data, so XY coordinate data on all the Naira races, all the races in New York uh, for 2019. Okay, it's 5.3 million rows of data. It's only maybe 15 columns long. And we're looking for insight into things like drafting strategy, jockey uh, decision making. And really, it's a it's a pool of data that had existed before, but we never really knew to tap into it. Mm -hmm. And we basically, we called it the big data derby. Uh, thanks to Michael Lopez for helping me get started. I basically cold called him <laughs> and he told me, you got to call Addison at, at Kegel or Kaggle, however we're supposed to pronounce it. Um, and the rest is history, but you're so right. You Sorry, go ahead. Your your it's Lopez's data bowl is literally the inspiration for this. The inspiration, right? the copy, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Joe, let me ask you: Are you? Um, is there a specific outcome in many Kaggle competitions? You're trying to predict something with the lowest error, and you meant, even mentions here that there's some sort of judges. Like, is there a subjective nature to it, or is it like it's clear who the winner is because her or his algorithm best predicts something? So. Yes and no. Uh, there are judges. We went with a what they call an analytical contest as opposed to a predictive contest. Similar to the NFL, it's more about storytelling, right? It's tell us something we don't know. Uh, I'll give you an, a quick example. Many people think in some races it's better to have a post, a starting position, on the outside, and that even though it's a few feet longer, your horse has the ability to come around and not get into trouble. 
However, I've run those numbers, and that's an old wives' tale. Essentially, mm-hmm. posts one through seven have the exact same uh, percentages of winning, finishing in the money. I even did it versus expectation, if we believe the odds are an efficient market. Mm-hmm. And then post eight through 12, there's a huge drop off. So that that's the sort of inspiration mm-hmm. I'm hoping someone can show us. Mm-hmm. Is it smart to draft? Should horses go to the lead more often or not? Should what kind of decision makings are different jockeys doing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is there a way to tell that stuff? Right? So, Joe, it it sounds like you you have data like in game data. It's not just start and finish. You've got data of what happens. He said X Y coordinate data. Yeah, I should. We do have X Y coordinate. We don't ping as frequently as the NFL data does, uh, <laughs> but we we're having uh, four hertz or four times per second. You're getting an XY <laughs> coordinate and a data stamp. Okay. Uh, you know, is one of the problems, Joe? Could you rate jockeys? So, do you have the who the jockey was? And so, you could, if somebody wanted to come up with a ranking of like an ELO type rating system of the quality of jockeys, we would love that. Uh, you have the jockey, you have the surface, you have the distance, you have the day, the race number, a couple other things kind of primary data, but we're really looking for people to dive into the movement data. And if you go on the site right now, you will see people have posted their code and it's pretty impressive, especially mm-hmm. some of the uh, the acceleration and sp- velocity curves that they've mm-hmm. already posted. It's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Joe, can you tell us where to find these data? We'll turn around and promote it on Twitter, but just go ahead and tell us where these guys can go to if you go to the Kegel website, K-A-G-G-L-E dot com and type in Big Data Derby, it will take you right there. Big Data so, Derby. Big Data yes. Derby. All right. What are your objectives here? It's, it's not clear what you're going to get out of this. And I can imagine there may be different things, but what are you hoping to get out of this? Why are you doing this? We'd love to learn something. I think secondarily, and, and maybe this is primarily, we'd love to build a bench of data scientists who are comfortable working with this data. Mm-hmm. We've had siloed data for a long time. There's been an explosion in wearables in human athletes over the last five years. That is coming to horse racing. And we need a bench of scientists outside of people with domain knowledge, right? Who are, we can marry with people with domain knowledge to actually push this forward. Mm-hmm. I think, But Joe, why? I'll tell you why. Number one issue in basically all sports, and ours is no different, is preventing injuries of the animal, right? Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. see it in the NFL everywhere. I saw Serling Shepard go down last night at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. Made me Mm want to cry, that poor guy, right? It's the same thing with our animals. We want them to be not only in as safe a position as possible, but you also want utility from them, the ability for them to run more frequently and people enjoy them, both their owners, the public, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And this is the first step. This won't get us there. We're not going from zero to 100 right now, but we need people who can work with this data, who are comfortable with it, who are going to learn about it. So as we start collecting heart rate and ECG monitoring and and more defined uh, stride length and load variance from side to side, that we can really do a good job of coming up with some some scientific based conclusions as opposed to kind of, you know, old trainer and old coach talk. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that's really critical. 
Well, you're going to, my prediction is you'll learn some direct things from what the modelers do and tell you, but you'll also learn indirectly new questions, things to do differently, new um, questions to ask for the future as a result of this first generation of questions. It's a rich situation that you've set up. I'm going to guess that you do more than one. Tell you what, we can pretty much promise to interview your winning competitor. Once you guys, I mean, this is a rich, rich situation. We will love to hear. We're all curious to hear what they come up with, especially Shane. Shane is all about the horse racing. If it involves a horse, he's there. And in fact, I'm, I'm kind of shocked he's not on the committee already, but we will take up whatever you got on the other end of this thing. So Joe, thanks for coming out and talking to us. Good luck to you in the competition. Okay. Thank you so much, guys. It's a pleasure. Shane, don't worry. I'll be emailing you to get you on our judges panel. <laughs> I really appreciate all right, it. All right. Joe, Joseph Applebaum, he's president of the New York Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association. He, after a career elsewhere, finds himself raising, training, running horses, and now helping with the governance. They've got a big data derby. It's modeled after the NFL Big Data Bowl. Big data derby. You can find it on Kegel's website at Big Data Derby. That has been three quarters, guys. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, the fourth quarter, our traditional interview segment since the pandemic came around. We almost always do an interview. We sometimes do one before now, but we're almost always doing one in Q4. We have one this week. We have a first-time visitor this week. We have Aaron Bauman joining us. We are delighted for the chance to talk with him. Aaron is a distinguished engineer and master inventor within IBM's GBS Interactive Experience, which is focused on artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. Aaron has worked with ESPN Fantasy Football, Fox Sports, Media Pro, the Atlanta Falcons, the Masters, USGA, it goes on. He has a BS in computer science from Georgia Tech. I think those guys know what they're doing. And an MS in computer science from Johns Hopkins, also an outfit known for knowing what it's doing. And Aaron has over 200 patents with another 100 pending. Aaron Bauman, delighted to meet you. Thanks for being here. Great. Yeah, nice to be here and excited to tell you my story. Well, Aaron, we're curious to hear about it excited to hear about it tell us first uh, i want to tell the audience that you're wearing a master's hat which is a good way to curry favor on this show well done (laughs) and we're going to want to hear about that but first tell us where you're calling in from today okay so um i sit within uh research triangle park in north carolina Ah, so it's okay in between you know duke and unc which is a great area for uh sports rivalries Mm-hmm. Now, you didn't mention NC State. Isn't it kind of in between Duke, UNC, and NC State as well? In fact, aren't there more techie folks down there at NC State than at the other two? Or I might have that wrong. Yeah. So um, NC State, um, you know, you know, whenever I think about sports, I think uh, basketball. You know, this is the mecca of basketball. And so, and so I'm mm-hmm. thinking that, and I go straight, you know, sorry, Wolfpack fans, you know. Um, but, um, you know, when it goes to tech, you know, uh, quantum computing uh, is very big at uh, NC State, very good computer science program, although not as good as Georgia Tech and Johns Hopkins, I got to say. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> you got to twist that knife a little bit. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, um, an- another little plug for the Wolfpack. They are, I think, hosting Clemson 
this week. It's a big football game in the ACC. Um, they've is. had NC State's off to one of their better starts. Expectations are high, and they've got a monster game with Clemson this coming weekend. Okay, Aaron, so you're sitting there in Research Triangle Park, and tell us a little bit about your job. Like, d- Tell us what it involves. Tell us what you're working on today. Let us better understand what it is that you're doing. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, um, what I do from a day-to-day perspective is it's pretty neat. You know, um, I get to work with um, a lot of our properties. Um, so I work with ESPN Fantasy Football. In fact, today, you know, um, I'm getting 10 million you know, users right now over the Fantasy Football application that looks at different football player stats. Are they going to boom? Are they going to bust, you know, in their upcoming games in week four? You know, so it's, it's really um, a lot of fun. Um, I also do a lot of golf. So, Aaron, hold on, work. Aaron. Before before you go to golf, what is it that you're doing with the fantasy football platform at ESPN? What's your role there? Okay, so um, as a distinguished engineer and a technical executive, um, I lead the overall um, artificial intelligence work. Um, you know, it, this is sort of my baby project. You know, I, I've been with it since the beginning. Uh, Which was and, when? Uh, this was about six years ago. Okay. Um, you know, we have met with uh, ESPN down in the labs um, in Austin, Texas, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how, how can we help all these millions of fantasy football players? You know, and as my role, right, um, um, I was thinking about you know, some of the pain points, you know, and um, if you play fantasy football, you know, you know, you have to set a lineup every single week uh, and daily. You got to set a lineup almost every day, you know, and it's nearly impossible to read the Internet to figure out, you know, your decisions around players, you know, much less listen to videos and podcasts, you know? So, so we came up with an idea, um, just a back the napkin idea at a restaurant one night and presented it to ESPN and they loved it where we would have a system that would read the internet, watch videos and watch and listen to podcasts about every player within fantasy football, and then use that unstructured information, text, sound, uh, and vision to predict how a player is going to perform. Right. And and we show it within the fantasy football app, you know, so you can go in and you can see Gaussian distributions. If someone's going to boom, if they're going to bust, compare shapes so you can get, you know, the floor and the ceiling of players. Um, and every day, I serve up 250 uh, terabytes of uh, data uh, to 10 million users. <laughs> so um, that's that's actually going on right now. You know, so yeah, it's, right. it's a it has fast to be. paced, fast so paced it- job, you know. If or do they? <laughs> or they might even be listening to us right now. Um, we might say something. Uh, there's some chance we say something about a player, Aaron. Um, that is, of course, fascinating. It will quickly make us feel like dinosaurs because I'm pretty sure that Eric's models don't include um, audio <laughs> files from podcast continuously scanned. Um, so it, Eric's about to jump in. I can tell Shane will jump in, but. Give us, we're modelers. And um, I think that means we're both fascinated by what you just said, probably a little skeptical and need to understand better the value of things like podcast versus a more traditional modeling, which would be, you know, statistics oriented, uh, usage, utilization oriented, some kind of um, the bread and bread, bread and butter inputs of that kind of model. So how do how do you supplement that traditional stuff and how important is that supplement right so so the challenge was we wanted to stay away from traditional stats right to predict the boom and bust and we didn't know if we could do it do it accurate enough and so on and so 
um, what we did is we went step by step, right? Is I first scoured the internet around news sources and I trained a word embedding model, you know, around keywords, concepts, and then, and entities, right? So those three buckets of uh, information. And so what that means is that we had to teach our system how to read uh, fantasy football dictionaries. And on the other hand, how to read fantasy football jargon. So mm -hmm. both of them, you know, so we had factual information and then we had media type information. Um, and then, and then I had word embeddings that would be created from the factual information and some of them that were created from the media information. And, and, and then I would take all of the articles. So at minimum 50 articles about each player have my uh, algorithms enrich the uh, content so I could pull out concepts, uh, entities, and keywords, all three, feed each one of those buckets into a word embedding, get a very large feature vector. It's just about uh, 300 feature vector in length from facts, and then another 300 in length from just media. And then I would feed that into a 96-layer deep learning neural network uh, that was trained using TensorFlow. Um, you know, um, it, it, it mostly had ReLU activation functions and then a softmax at the very end. And uh, it would tell us basically um, what the odds or probability was that a player was going to boom or bust. Um, and we tested it and, um, and, and it, it did fairly well with boom and busting. So Aaron, hold on. Before you go, I want to ask clarification on that, on that model, because that was we we are we often go deeper than our audience wants to go, but I suspect that was the, perhaps the deepest. Some of the deepest. Um, can Eric or Shane summarize the description of that process for us, or and just just we don't need a great detail. Like roughly, what did Aaron just say again? Well, my summary of it would be he's using uh, I'll call it non-numeric data sources in many cases. Uh, to collect information on words um, and other data. He's creating every player then is represented in a, if you'd like, I think he said 300-dimensional space. So each person is scored on a bunch of different dimensions. And now he hasn't told us yet exactly what his dependent variable is of boom or bust, if he's doing some sort of, you know, what he's trying to predict. But he's feeding all of that information into a neural network, which unlike linear models that we tend to predict, neural networks are going to predict complex interactions among these variables that's going to allow him to predict some set of outcome. And since he's a computer science-like guy, my guess he does some sort of out-of-sample validation of this. He kind of trains the model, then tries to do some prediction and might, let's say he has some binary measure of boom or bust. What kind of, if you like, um, what's his hit rate? Or maybe he gets some probability assessment of boom or bust, and he's got some error rate in his prediction of boom or bust. But he's basically taking a large corpus of data, creating a multidimensional vector, jamming it into something that doesn't assume linearity and is using complex interactions via neural net to come up with predictions of boom or bust. Now, Aaron can grade me because I yeah, exactly. all the time. Exactly. Let Aaron grade me on what I just said. I think exactly. you boomed it. I think you boomed it, Eric. I mean, I'll, I'll just sort of say, I, I think a couple points that would, I'd need clarity on is kind of what you mean by where you say it did fairly well, kind of relative to what. Um, and also kind of how these, how this corpus of text data 
is actually distilled into some kind of fact, like factors. Like, are we just talking about presence or absence of certain words or is it somehow more complex than that? Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, you certainly go along the lines of booming and we define booming <laughs> as, um, you know, you have to be in the 85th percentile of the scoring range of someone in your position for a certain week. Right. And so that's a B, a B plus, Eric. You got a B plus. I, I hear beer. He people. said at <laughs> least 85%. Let the man, don't interrupt the man. He's talking intelligently here. <laughs> and then busting, which you didn't come close to, oh. uh, is where a player has to be within the 15th percentile, you know. Um, so, so we, so we split it up, you know, you know, we do, you know, we chop out 15%, you know, from the bottom and from the top. Right. And, and so is the outcome variable like an order, like a three category variable? So it, it's a, it's a binary. It's, it's, did you boom? Yes or no. Did you bust? Yes or no. So, so um, I have multiple models. Okay. I have one model for boom, one model for bust. Yeah, so, so it's a binary classifier. Right. And, and so that's the dependent and the, and the historical data came from, uh, um, we uh, scoured the internet uh, as long as the article had a published by date. It, it, it's not an easy process, but uh, you have to timestamp the article when it was published and written uh, to the actual gameplay stats as far as when the game happened right. so that you can correlate the text to the stats and have your ground truth and then measure what your accuracy is as far as did this player or set of players that you're testing boom within the 85th percentile of the score. That they mm-hmm. did score within fantasy. So these are fantasy football scoring. We, we call the PPR points per mm-hmm. reception. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's that's the, the that's the number, the thresholding number, the 85th percentile that we use for for boom. And yeah, Aaron, one, yeah. can I ask one one more clarifying question? Sure. It, it's a it's a it's a it's a large model to calibrate. How much history did you have to draw on in order to in order to build a model? to train we went back about five five years you know um of of data to do that and i used about 90 gigs of data um you know to train a uh, word embedding and and a word embedding um, it creates loosely independent variables you know which which describe um how close you are to other words right um uh, within uh this this large mesh of words that, that 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 you've trained and one technique could be document to vector Another could be love. Uh, we use document to vector in order to do it. Um, and, and then we concatenate um, other data with its sentiment along different dimensions. We look at uh, what's the, the player's performance sentiment? What's the, the team fan sentiment? What's the coach sentiment? What's the uh, different performance sentiment? And, and, and so on and so forth. And all this is concatenated together into one large, that's about 700 Length vector, and then that's fed into our neural network. So, I mean, it's but extraordinary also- exercise in crowdsourcing, right? I mean, this is essentially this is a, it's it's nothing more or less than extracting as much signal as you can get from the ridiculous multi-voice conversation that goes on about NFL players continuously. But what you're specifically extracting is presence or absence of words. That's the that's the thing you're feeding into the neural net specific words um, it's, like you've it's got this almost it's about the semantic meaning of words what's their relationship to other words because because words are vectored into a hilbert space a very large you know uh, space 
and it, and it and this mesh organizes in this in this n-dimensional space. It organizes where the words go. So so say the word football and helmet might be very close together, but the word football and pizza may not be. You know, so they might be really far away or really close together. And that three hundred dimensional coordinate space tells me where this word is in re- in re- relation to other words. Mm-hmm. So Aaron, yeah, like, so, so it, because so it, it is... tries to get this semantic meaning. Yeah, it's it's, it's very rich in, in NLP. I'm, can you give us some sense of how I'm, I'm struck by, like it, it calls to question how much of a populist you are essentially when it comes to forecasting. Um, Cause this is populism rendered as wise as possible from technology, but it's still ultimately populism. And it really is. There's an open question on how much wisdom there is in that. So empirically you said you wanted to avoid the statistics based models. Have you done comparisons and I'm curious both to the the relative performance of the two, but also the marginal contribution of one to the other. How much overlap is there and how much marginal contribution is there? Right. So, you know, you know, f- further down the pipeline, um, we found that just using, you know, words and language wasn't enough uh, to, to be accurate, to give us a projection for a player. We compared our projection to ESPN's projection um, and it and it wasn't. Um, the, the root mean squared error is uh, what we use. It wasn't low enough, uh, you know, for us to actually publish. And so that's when we added in stats, traditional stats, right? Okay. And and so and so I measured, you know, uh, um, I used different types of, of ensembles of regressors, right? Where where I would predict, you use a regression algorithm that would take the output of our neural network, combine it with stats, such as how many points has this player, you know, scored, uh, scored in the past? Uh, what rank are they? You know, so it's, it's ordinal type data as well as discontinuous type data that we would feed into a regression equation that combined the output of the neural network with stats. And then that would output a score projection and found mm-hmm. that, that in order to get accurate enough, there was too much noise right, uh, in the modeling process to give us a precise score projection. And therefore, we had to use stats further down in the pipeline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and um, Shane. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, the fact, so it sounds like you're only kind of taking, using this very complicated neural net to somehow build in the text part of your data, like, you know, the, um, whereas you're also using kind of traditional stats. So, of course, the obvious question would be, is does the text actually add predictive value on top of just using the stats, like just doing a statistical model based on those stats? Yeah, so so you know you know for for the boom and bat and, and bust, um, um, we 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 do think that it does add a lot of value. Um, a entertainment value uh, because people um, can then in turn. Oh, can you still hear me? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, we we can. I, I mean, I guess just, uh, you know. Um, okay. But, I mean, I no, guess the, I was yeah, specifically yeah, the, referring to predictive value, which you can measure, obviously, whether or not, you know, a model with um, the traditional stats and this kind of text-based, you know, data predicts better than a model just with the traditional stats. Right. Yeah. 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 My apologies. My screen froze. So I wasn't sure you could hear me. But yeah. 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 So, so where, so where I was going with that is that um, 
Um, you know, we provide entertainment value because people intend, you know, they will read more sources, we'll keep them in the ecosystem of ESPN uh, because we'll show them the sources that contribute to the text, right, um, of a player booming or busting. Um, and, and so it, it helps ESPN uh, to attract uh, more people onto their ecosystem. So that's, that's one, of the, um, the, the, one of the measurements and metrics that we were measured against was to get more traffic and have people read ESPN type stories longer than they would have before. <laughs> okay, so uh, let me let me just part, comment on that real uh, real quickly because um, that people are so cynical about click and clicks and traffic. It strikes me that there's something there quite benign and even positive, and that is you're giving people resources. They want to know more, they want to read more, and you're giving them stuff. They can do with it what they want, but it's like a it's like a giant reference list that they can dig into more deeply. At least this is one positive spin on that kind of traffic key motivation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We call it explainable AI. You know, we provide mm-hmm. evidence sources behind why it is. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them is is ESPN, others go outside of ESPN, mm-hmm. Yahoo Sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we, we look at over a hundred thousand sources, but we also have to be careful because there's you know, like the football onion we don't want to use. <laughs> um, you know, uh, because you know, one time I read that a certain player broke his leg, and, and I had him on my team. I was like, "Wait a second, that can't be right." And then I saw the source. Said, "Okay, no, it's not." So, you know, so so we do over time, you know, have a list of sources that we don't use, right? Um, and and that uh, we have sources that we boost up more that 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 we attempt to say are more is, factual. Is Steve is but Stephen right, A. Smith is on the objective. is Stephen A. Smith on the don't use list? Uh, no comment. <laughs> How do you, Aaron, how do you decide when it's time to uh, retrain your model? Like, how does, uh, how do you guys think about that? And can you train it continuously? Like, is it a rolling window of data or how do you measure, kind of continue to measure the accuracy? So, um, so one example is whenever COVID hit, right? Um, uh, With our language models, we didn't have much to do with um, epidemiology, you know, much about viruses, much less COVID. And so the language changed a lot, right, from uh, season over season. Uh, people were talking more about injuries. And so uh, we, we would look and see, you know, what, what was our accuracy of boom and bust as opposed to the previous seasons? Um, and then I would also look at the kinds of words that uh, we had. Uh, you know, so, so were we drifting in the domain with respect to the words that we were getting? Were we also drifting in the type of accuracy that we were getting, uh, you know, uh, based on the boom and bust. And then we would go further down and see, are our stats hedging against some of this drift whenever we would give predictions, um, you know, for, for the points. Um, and, and then, and then whenever we just display it to, to the users, you know, they see the boom and bust, which is, which is focused more on natural language. And then they will also see the projection curves, which is focused on a fusion of stats as well as yeah, natural language. And I do, I do have a published paper um, that goes more into, I think, some of these questions um, where we ran experiments and showed a lot of the different numbers that you're asking for about, you know, mm-hmm. what's more important of a predictor than another, you know, what's the R squared value of certain, you know, you know, um, uh, independent variables that we left it out. But it was incredible because, because I was actually skeptical of thinking, can we really use natural language you know, to predict boom and bust. And, and, and for the last six years, we have been, right? And, um, 
and then and then of course it, it was more of a recall oriented type system whereas um you know whereas the other type um of pro projections was more of a precision based where we wanted to get more precise around the rmse uh, metric that we are measuring and so and, and, and so we cast a wide net for for a boom and bust to get as much content as possible whereas with stats, we try to fine-tune, you know, the the specific stats that we want to use to hedge against this large net, so that once we get to the score projection, uh, it's fine-tuned, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. and close closer to the ground truth than it would have been. Does that help? It, it does, Aaron. And it strikes me that you have a, a challenge in this model. So setting aside the the details of the model building itself, you have a challenge of convincing the audience that your model's good. And your model is like super complicated. And so the more complicated it is in many situations, the harder it is to convince people. And this is a general challenge. As we've gotten more sophisticated with our models, AI, machine learning, deep learning, getting others to trust those models is hard. What have you learned about that process? Yeah, I mean, I mean just, just to switch gears a bit, um, if that's okay, you know, sure. going to, a, to another sport because we focus heavily on fantasy football, um, you know, but in tennis, you know, we just finished up the US Open. Uh, you know, I was pulling for Serena, you know, going for and uh, uh, glad glad I got to see her play. You know, you know, I wanted to make sure I saw her her last time. Uh, but uh, we predicted who was going to win every match, uh, and singles, men's singles, and women's singles. And you know, um, the way we get people to trust that prediction is through a myriad of different aspects. Is one, we look at transparency. We show how the model's working. You know, which predictors is the model using? And then we show explainability. We convert the different types of, um, diff of predictors into sentences that, that were, that tennis fans can relate to. Um, and then, and then we also run what's called data to text where I'll take stats that we use and I'll create sentences from the stats. You know, you know, so, so if you were to go to the usopen.org, um, and then, um, and then click on IBM match insights, um, you'll see, you know, all the matches that we predict, you know, with, with different per percentages. And then there's a button. If you click the Y, then you could go in and begin to get the explainable and trustworthy AI, you know, that we show. And we try to peel away that data onion to it, to show all the different region reasons why. Mm -hmm. That it, that those are hard things to do. I'm curious. Maybe we don't have the capability to go into it right now, but, um, what you're saying is something that all modelers need to be doing when they present their results. And it sounds like you guys, because essentially you have to convince millions of people every time you put up a model, you're getting pretty good at this. Um, what's an example of something you've learned as you've built out this explainability and stats to words? What's an example of something you've learned that's important to keep in mind as a modeler? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean you know, I've, I've learned that um, AI is not perfect, right? That... Uh... Um, that whenever you have millions of consumers you know, that are using your system, you're never going to please everybody, um, you know. And and so what now that that may not is, be AI's fault. That's because with a million users, some people just aren't pleasable. Right, right. But 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 we can try to minimize that, right? And and by and what what we do is two things, at least two things. You know, that just two things pop in mind. But one is is we put a human in a loop. Right where where we, we have human work with AI that can correct um, some of some of our sentences or win factors that we call it um, that can you know question you know a prediction 
you, you know, maybe it's an outlier. Like Serena Williams was was ranked somewhere in the 600s going into her match one. We we were predicting her to lose, you know, um, and, you know, somebody saw it and was questioning it. An expert was asking us why. And, you know, we had to explain it. And that helps us to just make sure that, you know, um, our models you know, are reasonable, are uh, making sense. So that's 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 one way. Uh, the other way is, is we add in personalization. So, um, for example, in fantasy football, we analyze trades. You know, so maybe you and I are, are – I, I propose a trade for your team. I want to trade a quarterback for maybe your running back, right? But what if the player that, that I'm giving up is my favorite player, even though he's a terrible player? terrible player. And I was going to get the number one running back from you. I would think it's a bad trade, even though I'm getting a ransom back, right? All because it's my favorite player. And so, and so with these types of prescriptive optimization algorithms, you know, like a, like a zero one knapsack that searches and finds trades that should happen or great trades, we try to personalize it so that, so that we boost up the valuation of certain players based on what you like, you know, so we try to make it a little, more personalized to your situation rather than just objective from the numbers. And, and Aaron, so, do people so, just, so I've learned that do, a lot. Do, do the users just know that you're trying to do that or do they get to participate actively in that personalization in some way? Yeah. So, so they, so they uh, participate. So you, they, they fill out a profile, you know, about their favorite players, okay. you know, yeah. what, okay. what positions they like, you know, and it's just part of the process flow. Yeah. Right. And, Good. and so, and so they're, they're actively, you know, participating in that you know i mean they can choose not to that's fine you know um but it's just then it won't be as personal you know towards your preferences yeah 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 so, we've we've done some know. research on algorithm aversion and one of the prescriptions that comes out of that research is to let them um put their hands on the model basically let them tweak it a little bit even if it makes the model worse off if it increases yeah. the likelihood they'll use the model it's it's often worthwhile Aaron, before you go, we want to hear about the about the golf. You're working with Masters. You're wearing a Masters cap. Oh, it's one of yeah. our favorite events of the year. What is it that you're doing on the golf side of things? Yeah, so so in golf, we do a lot there. Um, so so I'll, I'll just I'll just go through the laundry list and then, and then maybe deep dive into one. But um, so so for every shot on every hole, uh, we automatically create highlights from video. You know, so we use acoustic analysis and computer vision and stats to find the bookmarks, a clip you know, uh, within, um, a stream to, you know, to find, uh, all the different highlights, um, you know, to find that signal and the noise. That's one project. Another is, uh, we simulate, um, the tournament going forward. So after every single hole shot on a hole, we'll, we'll, we'll get a result and then we'll kick off our simulator. And that simulator, you know, simulates the rest of the tournament forward for the current round. Mm-hmm. You know, we also simulate all rounds forward so we can predict who's who's going to be on top on the leaderboard round by round, hole by hole, you know, yep. and the leader. We we just did that uh, this past Masters. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and the third thing, uh, final final aspect is we do a lot of natural language processing. So we go out and we mine the Internet and we find factoids or insights about players. All right. And we um, and, and we show those insights around the player cards. And then we take stats and we write sentences based on the stats. We call it natural language generation. And we write fact-based sentences around the stats, you know, such as. So what's, what's an know, example there? Hole in ones has a, um, yeah. So, so we could say, you know, um, on, on hole one, golfer A has X number of birdies. 
you know, you know, would, would, would be an example sentence that we would write, you know, so. So that's, it's remarkable. It's yeah. Yeah. No, it's remarkable to me because it's the most basic thing that we should be doing as an analyst and you're automating it. And in some ways you're automating in, in some cases, super simple versions of it, but you're like, okay, modelers speak English, not numbers. And um, that yeah. sounds, I can imagine yeah. that's really useful. I can imagine the better you get at it, the more useful it will become. What, you mentioned three things there, and um, I want to follow up on one of them in particular. You said you send the tourney going forward from every shot or from every hole, and that last year was the first year you did that. Who is the consumer of that information, and who might in the future be the consumer of that information? Yeah, so um, at this past Masters, the consumer, were, it was a behind-the-scenes experience where we would give tours you know, and, and showcase our capabilities. Now, this upcoming Masters in 2023, it's going to be available to everybody. Right, so we're going to have a predictive scorecard um, that's that's going to be um, um, ready, you know, for our folks to to consume, you know, through a mobile app, right? Um, and so that's that's the goal, right? Is to have this very large scale. And you 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 mentioned too that sometimes you like to have a model in the hand of hands of users. Now, one of my challenges is that we have so many users, right? Is that um, scale, right? Um, if I put the model in the hands of a user, it's got to be on the edge yeah. or on their device. I can't have millions of users coming into our service yeah, right, using it. Right. And so, and so that's, that's something that we have to consider whenever we have run. Lots of our data is batch jobs. Some of it is actually, we'll take the raw traffic, you know, the, the traffic from our users coming in. Um, you know, the SIM is interesting because we're going to get messages from the scoring system about when a player finishes a hole, then we get to run a sim, right? So, yeah. so it's lots of simulations that are going to have to run in parallel at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aaron, can you give us a sense of what data you use for the sim? Like you could imagine it could have some, is it course specific? Is it like how much of the, how far back in time do I go if I'm trying to forecast a given golfer and how far he or she's going to drive the ball? What's the likelihood that they're going to hit on target? Like what's the data that goes into the sim? Okay, so so the data um, we go back to the 2017 Masters, right? And and uh, we get the different scores that a player has had in the history of their play, um, and then we also look at the stats, such as how far does a player hit, you know, from certain regions of the hole, and so on. And and I create different distributions called player signatures. So if so, um, if if a certain player is on hole one and they're in a certain region region on the fairway, then I'll look up their distribution and I'll sample from it to get what I think the distance that they're going to hit it for. Right. And so, and so I do this about, uh, I have 15 different predictors that I sample from player signatures based on where they are and the course. And, and then I feed that into a predictive model. We have 72 predictive models, right. Um, but, but I feed in those sampled values into the predictive model that then estimate where's the ball going to land next, right? And I string these together, you know, you know so, 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 so then I take the output of that model, um, I figure out where, where the player's going to be, you know, I then sample from the player's signature and I input it into the next model. So I string it together until finally the ball goes in the hole. All right. Well, listen, man, we could do this for a long time. That We could dig into that in great detail, but we've had you for more time than you promised us and we need to let you go. Um, super, super interesting. It's going to be, we all are big 
golf fans and especially masters fans it'll be interesting to see these products roll out and we'd love to hear more from you down the line aaron thank you for making time for the show and explaining this work to us thanks a lot for the for the opportunity here it's a lot of fun absolutely aaron bauman aaron is a distinguished engineer and master inventor within ibm's gbs interactive experience focused on ai and emerging technologies clearly does a lot of work with espn helping those guys add some super interesting tools to um, the sports consumption world. All right, gentlemen, we've got just a couple of quick minutes before we got to get out of here. Any reactions to that discussion with Aaron? I'm very curious to hear how you're thinking about it. I mean, we could have gone forever with him, right? Um, but, but, and we need, probably need to come back and talk to him some more, but I'm curious to get your quick reaction. While the predictive models uh, were definitely sophisticated, um, and, and very interesting. Um, they're actually probably state of the art in what a number of people are doing. In other words, a lot of people are taking text corpus and other data, um, creating a, if you'd like, a big multidimensional cloud and then uh, creating a vector of variables, jamming it into a neural net. And then in this case, a binary classification. So I'm impressed more so with the choice of data source. Um, the methods are sophisticated, but I don't know that they're anything in some sense that someone trying to predict the fault of a product wouldn't do or something yeah. else. Yeah. But I I enjoyed the, if you'd like, the state-of-the-art data collection, the state-of-the-art creation of independent variables, the neural net, the predictions. And I certainly enjoyed the most, matter of fact, I enjoyed the most. But I'm very interested at some point, I'm going to need to dig into the details of the golf because I'm really interested in how you make predictions, especially from regions where a given golfer hasn't been. And so now you have to do all kinds of, you know, I don't know if they're Bayesian and they have priors or they do some sort of shrinkage, but I'm really interested in hearing about that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was, I, I mean, I guess I'd like to dig into the golf model as well because it wasn't clear to me. I mean, it sounds like they're rerunning this model, you, you know, they're kind of running this sim forward once they get the result of a particular golfer on a hole. But it sounds like it actually, at least the data or, or the sim they're doing is almost like a shot by shot simulation. Where you could, you know, presumably you could. Where, That's got to be but tough. Presumably, but yeah. I mean, I, I just, you know, again, um, it wasn't kind of clear. Yeah, that that was less clear to me that are, are we actually kind of updating running this sim forward and running this sim for the Shane, entire you're like tournament the kids, forward, man. based you're, on every single talk. You're uh, like the kids that, you know, they used to be sim it after the round is over. Now they're simming it after every hole. And you're like, Hey man, why not sim it after every shot? Give me more. Well, I mean, I mean, Give me more. I mean yeah. I mean, I, I, that's the only way in which you'd use is, that kind of spatial yeah. information. So it's, I, it's clearly a shot by shot, shot by shot later. It's a yeah. shot by shot simulator for sure. And um, I think the nice thing about it is it gives us uncertainty. Therefore, in the uh, predictions. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that's fascinating to do. Okay, guys, I'm gonna give you a few quick comments. Um, one, I'm curious about the incentives because Aaron was quite upfront about the fact that they're not only interested in forecast accuracy, but in traffic and certain kinds of traffic. And so whether or not the models, the perfect predictor is only part of the equation. And we have to keep that in mind. Um, I thought that, and I, I think we could probably learn a ton from the explaining that they're doing and the way of communicating this very sophisticated technology to the users of the technology in a way that increases the consumption of that technology. 
that is one of the biggest challenges, you know, we all know and, and struggle with this. One of the biggest challenges we face, these guys are doing it for millions of users on a continuous basis, stands to reason that they would be very good at it. One particular element of that, he used this phrase, human in the loop. That's a, a, a known term in that community, but something increasingly relevant to less sophisticated communities. And you can flip it around and say algorithm in the loop. You're trying to get these two different kinds of decision-making to play more nicely together. And there's lots of people like these guys working on that. I think there's a lot to be learned from. And just for one sentence, I would say for me, human in the loop implies it's an opportunity for model improvement. Because when the human disagrees with the algorithm, like Serena Williams, as he was saying, is you know predicted to lose and the human might correct it, then you start to think, well, maybe my variable set isn't as complete as I want. And that's an and opportunity. Eric, what percentage of models ha- could, could be improved? Everyone. Exactly. <laughs> it's almost all. All right, guys, that's been that's been a very long Q4 and a substantial interview with Aaron Bauman, a few commentaries on it. That has been also two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week for the whole crew. Eric, Shane, and um, Eric, Shane have been with me here in this last quarter. Brody Weiner, who's been through earlier parts of the show for the boss man, Matty Dats, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Many thanks to you all for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.